Hey, welcome to River Ridge Church. My name is Matt. Welcome to all you all who are here. More and more folks are listening online, so welcome to you who are online as well. So we are beginning, or not beginning, we are in week three of a series titled Road Trip. And over the course of the summer, we're taking this virtual road trip with Jesus around the Judean countryside. And it's interesting, as because that title is in front of me all the time, I keep having these memories of different road trips that I have been on. And what struck me this week as I was thinking about road trips is that road trips have changed over the last 20 years when I first started, or 30 years when I first started doing road trips. And kind of what brought this to mind is I was thinking about this time where uh, I was in Cincinnati, Ohio, living in Cincinnati. I was going to a college in Connecticut, uh, but a buddy of mine, uh, I was going back to school at the end of the summer, he was going to go to this camp in New York called Saranac Lake. It was a Young Life camp, still is a Young Life camp. And so I was going to take a detour through New York and then go over to Connecticut. And so we leave at 7 in the morning uh, to head up there. It's about, from Cincinnati, it's about a 12 or 13 hour road trip. And so we begin driving, but we get on the Pennsylvania Turnpike and we hit this traffic jam. And it's like a huge traffic jam. We're waiting there for about an hour. It's the one that like you get out of your car and you start meeting people and we have a guitar, we're playing songs and just, you know, that type of thing. And, and then eventually word gets passed back from the front to where we are that this traffic jam is going to be about four or five hours long because two tractor trailers have mangled and they can't even get them apart. And so we're like, we're going to find a different way to get there. And you know, so we get off the highway. And here's the thing. I know, I know you young people are going to find this really hard to believe, right? But we didn't have, just push a phone and say, Siri, take me to Saranac Lake, right? We, we had this, this book in the back, and we took out this book, and we opened the book, and there were pictures of states in the book. Each page had its own picture of a book in alphabetical order. And so we turned to the one that said P for Pennsylvania, and there were all these lines inside the picture which represented roads. And so we followed this map. And um, However, I will say we didn't follow it very well because we got so incredibly lost. What should have taken us 12 hours, taken us 12 hours, took us about 26 hours, and we arrived about mid-morning the next day. But the road trip that we're taking is a virtual road trip. We're looking at how Jesus, and we're following Jesus around and looking at some of these interactions, some of these crucial conversations that he had. And I want to encourage you as we go on this road trip to go along all the way. If you miss a message, pick it up online. Last week we talked about, or two weeks ago we talked about a scholar named Nicodemus and the interaction that he had with Jesus. Last week we talked about Jesus and an interaction that he had with the dad. And his, the dad's son had a medical issue, but the dad had a heart issue. He struggled with doubt. And that, that passage we looked at last week contains one of my favorite prayers, which is, Lord, I believe Help my unbelief. And I love that passage in that prayer. I encourage you to listen to that. But beyond that, we also want to encourage you on the, the eight weeks that we're doing this series, but also encourage you to engage fully throughout the week. And so we put together this um, bookmark, which is called 40 Stories About Jesus That Everyone Should Read, marked out into eight different weeks, five readings a week. And I would really encourage you to read along with us. And, you know, I was actually the one that kind of picked the stories and put this together, and I have read all four Gospels multiple, multiple, multiple times. 
But I decided, you know, I'm going to go ahead and read along and, and be a part and be fully engaged in this road trip. And I'm so glad that I did, because I was a little hesitant to go, you know, I've read these stories, I picked the stories, I read them when we picked them. Um, but I tell you, when you read the stories about Christ thing, over and over, things come to life that you didn't expect. I was reading uh, in the first week about the temptations of Christ, and it just hit me how in the same way that Satan tells Jesus these lies, that Satan tells me lies as well. And so I wrote down, here's some of the things that Satan lies to me about. And then I wrote God's truth underneath each one of them. And then another couple days after that, I read some stories about how people were asking Jesus for healing. And I was just struck by this and how it was really helped, that really helped me to get over kind of a hurdle that I'm facing in my own prayer life, in my own asking of Jesus. So I encourage you, pick up one of these. They're out on the Summer at the Ridge table um, right next to one of the pillars in the lobby. And read along with us, because it will change you in terms of taking a full engagement of this road trip that we're doing. And so this morning, we are uh, doing a message, and we've titled it The Untouchables. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to look at two people who are untouchable in a sense. One who was unrighteous, and another who was self-righteous. And I think this is going to be a great message for every one of us to look at. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you are investigating Christianity, kind of trying to figure out, do I really want to follow Christ? Do I really want to accept Christ as my Savior? Do I really want to do this? This is going to give you a great look at Jesus and the person that you're considering entering into a relationship with. But by the same token, if you're a Christian and you've been following God for a couple of months or a couple of years or decades, this is a great message because what we're going to see in here is very challenging. It's very challenging for us to say, how do I look at people? How do I look at God? How do I look at myself? So I encourage you, as you listen and you involve yourself in this passage, it's to say, what is God teaching me in whatever stage of life, in whatever stage and steps of growth you are spiritually, what's he teaching you? So we're going to be in Luke chapter 7. So if you want to open up to Luke chapter 7, you can do that, and it will be... um, if you uh, have a Bible, open up there. If you want to, you can open up on the River Ridge app, and if not, it'll be on the screen behind me. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you just for this opportunity that we have to look into your word. And God, I pray that you would teach us. I pray that we would fully immerse ourselves into the story and the characters and the conversation that happens in this passage, and that you would teach it to us and you would bring it to life that we might use it as a mirror, that we might see ourselves in it and be able to apply it to our lives. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. Beginning in verse 36. And it says this. It says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So we won't find this out for another few verses, but the Pharisee has a name. His name is Simon. And so Simon is throwing this basically a dinner party for a bunch of people, and it's some, sort of a semi-open thing. There would be the invited guests and then some other people milling around and kind of a guest of honor, a table of honor. And so he has this um, party that's going on, and so it says uh, that Jesus reclined at the table. 
And that's not the way that we usually talk about being at the table. It's not like he had a lazy boy recliner that he was there, you know, cranking back on that next to the table. That the way that they ate is, and this will come in a little bit later in the story that's important, but the way they ate, the tables were sort of these low, sort of one and a half foot, two foot high tables, and they would lean on one arm, and then they would eat on their left arm, and they would eat with their right hand, and then their feet would stretch out behind them, and their feet would be pretty close to somebody else's head, you know, as they all kind of were around this table. And so Jesus is there, and he's been invited by Simon. And then this is what happens. Here's where the action starts. Verse 37. It says, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he, meaning Jesus, was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair, with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, this is, so this is the gospel of Luke, which means that Luke went around and he interviewed eyewitnesses to what happens here. And so he is telling the story of what happens with this woman. And so he refers to her and says, Behold, a woman of the city who is a sinner. Now, most commentators and most people believe that she was very likely a prostitute, that that is the way that he referred to her. And as we see this story unfold, we'll say that was more than likely the case. However, I love the fact that Luke doesn't fully go there. He doesn't say, and she was a prostitute. He leaves it kind of open for us in that she was a sinner because there's part of this story where we need to be able to look into it and say, am I like this woman? Am I a sinner like this woman? And we would go, yeah, all of us are. And there's a part of the story where we need to be able to look at the people around us and say, who are people who are like this? Who are people who have this sort of public sin out there? And so we see that there's this woman who approaches Jesus. Now, as we look at this passage, I want you to try and put yourself in this scene. That this was a dinner party. And, you know, and, and think about parties that you've been to where there's people standing around in clusters. There's people here and they're talking about you know, sports. There's people over there and they're talking politics. There's people over here and they're talking about family or illness or whatever. And you, know, you walk into a party like that and there's all these conversations going on. And maybe picture a party that you've been to that feels like that. And so that's what's going on in this party that Simon is throwing. And then in walks this woman, this woman of the city, most likely a prostitute. And she walks in, and think about how the mood would have changed when she walks in. That the conversations that were sort of loud and vibrant conversations all of a sudden turn into hushed conversations. Did you see who just walked in? Was she invited? No, she wasn't invited. Somebody needs to go talk to her and tell her she's not welcome here. You go tell her. No, you go tell her. No. Honey, go tell her. No. Well, maybe Simon will say something to her. And you can picture that as the conversation dies down and the whispers begin to happen. And think about this for a moment from the woman's perspective. That she walks in, and my guess is that she walked in probably with her head down. And she walks in, and it's kind of loud. And have you ever walked into a, a room and everybody's talking and then you walk in and everybody shuts up? And you're like, oh gosh, they were definitely talking about me. Well, you know what? 
they were talking about her. She walks in, and the loud conversations go to a whisper. And in she walks, and I, I picture her with her head down, and the quieter it gets, the slower she walks, and the more she just wants to cover her head and bury herself because there's all these righteous type of people there, and she knows that she's kind of viewed as an outcast, as an unrighteous person. Let me read to you the verse again, the second part. Verse 38, it says, And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. It says she was weeping. Why was she weeping? Was it tears of regret? Was it tears of acceptance? Was it tears of joy? Was it tears of knowing that she'd been forgiven? Why was she weeping? Well, Luke doesn't tell us. But I would surmise that it was probably all those reasons, all together, and probably more, as she was feeling accepted by Christ, as she was feeling regret over her past sin. All of it just comes out in this heap of emotion as she cries at Jesus' feet. And she cries to such an extent that it says that her tears dripped on his feet and she washed his feet with her tears and her hair. It also says that she brought with her an alabaster flask of ointment. This alabaster flask of of ointment was more than just a flask. It's not like she just stopped by Bath and Body Works on the way and was like, hey, I'll think I'll get some perfume to bring with me. No, it, this was an alabaster flask that probably hung around her neck that had incredible value. That it was the, the type of thing that she saved up and she kept, and it, it was her, in a sense, her savings, her portable savings account. But you see, it was more than that also. It was a tool of her trade. As she was with one guy, And then to kind of get the smell off her from that guy, she would put this ointment, this perfume on herself, and then she would go to the next guy. And then she would perfume and go to the next guy. So there was so much wrapped up in this alabaster flask of perfume. And then she comes to Jesus, and she pours it out, and she anoints his feet with this. And this is such an incredible act of worship. As she lays her life before him and says, I'm leaving my life of the past. I lay my life before you in worship to you. And I would stop and pause there and ask us a question. If you think about the things that you are holding back, that you haven't given over to God, what would you lay at the feet of Jesus? What what would you put there? Is there a physical object that you would lay at the feet of Jesus to say, I give this up to you? Is there a word? Is there a person? What what would it be that you would lay at the feet of Jesus and say, I release it to you that I might have forgiveness? As this scene is going on, for her, it's this incredibly intense time of repentance and joy and forgiveness and acceptance. And it's this moment between Jesus and the woman. But there's this whole other scene that's going on. As Simon sees what's happening, as all these people are watching what's happening and going, 
what is happening here? And they weren't looking at this saying, man, that's beautiful. They were looking at it, especially Simon, with some contempt. You know, there is a, um, a book called the Talmud. And the Talmud is a record at this time uh, of Jesus. It was a record of the traditions and ceremonial and civil sort of customs of the time. And one of the things in the Talmud, it said that a woman was never to let her hair down except when she was alone with her husband. Now, think about it. If you're a good Jew and you know the Talmud, and here is this woman at the feet of Jesus, and she lets her hair down and cleans his feet. That's what the other guests were seeing. And so it says this in verse 39. It says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. That was going through Simon's head. He's going, and it's sort of the way this is written. It's as though he's going, I thought that Jesus was a pretty bright guy. Does he not know who this woman is? Like, this is the town prostitute. How does he not know that? Maybe he's not a prophet. Maybe he's not all that smart. Maybe he's not all that bright. That's what's going through his brain. Then in verse 40, and Jesus answering him, which is just sort of funny if you think about it. He didn't say it out loud, but Jesus answers his thoughts. That would be a little freaky. And Jesus answering him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon answered, say it, teacher. And while Simon is, kind of has his issues, I actually love the fact that he says, say it, teacher. Teach me. I want to know what you know. It says, say it. And so then Jesus enters into and begins to tell this parable. It says this, certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? So he sets up this parable. He says, there's two guys. One guy owes 500 denarii. And a denarii, one denarii is a day's wage. So if we were to take our, you know, sort of our system, you say maybe it's $12 for a, a day of wage, day of labor. So it'd be about $96 or round up to $100. So one guy owes him $50,000, a lot of money. The other guy owes him $5,000, still a lot of money. And so he says to him, he says, they both owed this debt. Now these two guys have some things in common. Again, this is a parable. They both owe money to a money lender and they don't have the money to repay it, right? But what's different about them is that one owes a lot and one doesn't owe as much, but still owes an amount. Both are unrepayable. And then the money lender says, I'm going to forgive the debt of both of you completely. So, then he finishes with this question, finishes with this question, and he says, now which of them will love him more? And then here's Simon's answer in verse 43. Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And I love Simon's first response. He says, I suppose. It's as though he's like, Okay, I know I'm stepping into a trap here. I suppose it would be the one who had 
the bigger debt. It's like when somebody does a magic trick for you, you know, and like my friend John does magic tricks, and he's like, which one is it? I'm like, I know I'm stepping into a trap, and you're going to fool me, and that's what's going on here. I suppose it's this, and so then it continues on, verse 44. It says, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? It says, turning toward the woman. So it's really interesting. If you think about what's going on here, it says that Jesus was looking at the woman, but talking to Simon, who was over here. So he's looking at the woman, talking to Simon, and he says, do you see this woman? Now, the way that that would be answered very quickly is, she is Simon would have said, well, yes, of, of course I see this woman. But I think if, if, if he'd stopped right there and said, yes, I see this woman, I think Jesus would have said, no, Simon, you don't see this woman. Because when Simon looked at this woman, all he saw was here's this sinner. This woman, she is a sinner. She's a prostitute. That's all that he saw. He didn't see the hurts from her past. He didn't see what maybe drove her to this profession so she could earn a living. He didn't see all the baggage from her past and her relationship. He didn't see any of that. All he saw was, you're a sinner. And as we look in the mirror, I wonder, is that all that we see sometimes with people? That we see someone and say, you're just a gossip. That's all that you are. You're just difficult to get along with. That's all that you are. You're just a pain in my butt. That's all that you are. You're just bothersome. You're just this. You're just greedy. You're just selfish. You're just immature. You're, and, and I think sometimes we see people that way, we, and, but we don't really see them for all that they are because of their, their past and their hurts and what has caused them to get there. And so he says, Simon, do you see this woman? And he doesn't really get it. And so Jesus explains it more. He says, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You see, when you threw a party like this, you were supposed to provide somebody a servant or do it yourself to wash somebody's feet. But Simon invites, excuse me, Simon invites Jesus, but doesn't even have somebody there to wash his feet. And so the woman does it. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing, not ceased to kiss my feet. Doesn't even greet in a customary, friendly greeting with a greeting of a kiss. But yet, here's this woman. You do not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. She pours out what she has in this, in this bottle on Jesus' feet. But Simon, you didn't do any of that. You see, the contrast is huge between Simon, who is self-righteous, and this woman, who is unrighteous. And then Jesus delivers kind of the punchline here in verse 47. It says this. It says, you gave me no kiss, but from, the, excuse me, verse 47. Uh, it says, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. 
He who loves, he who's been forgiven much loves much. He who's lo- been forgiven little loves little. Now, I, I want to sort of put ourselves in Simon's brain for a second and sort of skeptical Simon's brain. And I, kinda, I can get there really easy because I'm pretty skeptical, right? And so if you're Simon, you're thinking, okay, so what you're saying, Jesus, is that the more that you sin, the more that you're forgiven and the more that you love. And so that means that I should go and sin a whole lot and then I can be forgiven a whole lot and then I'll love God a whole lot more. I hope that's not true because I've been raising my kids wrong the entire time. I want my kids to do the right thing and also to love God. But if if that's the implication, then what I really want is I want my kids to be terrible, nasty, mean, crazy people and then be forgiven and they'll love God a whole lot more. Is anybody going to follow that strategy? No. See, we're missing something here. You see, what Simon was missing or skeptical Simon, or skeptical Matt, as we now understand this, but what he was missing is is Jesus was saying that everybody has sinned in a great way. Go back to the moneylender parable. The guy that owes 50, he can't repay it. The guy that owes 500, he can't repay it either. You see, Jesus is teaching them and us teaching us this idea that we need to be forgiven. Paul would put it a little bit differently, but the same sentence. He would say, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul would write, there is no one who is righteous, no, not one. That is all of us. And the story concludes Verse 48 says this. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with them began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You know, we look at the end of this story and we know what happens with the woman, don't we? That her sins are forgiven And Jesus says, go in peace. And I think we can read this and say, she leaves her life of prostitution and lives a life of following after God because she is forgiven and she goes and lives her life in peace. But what we don't see in here is what happens to Simon. What does it say about Simon in those last couple of verses? It doesn't say what happened to Simon. You know, maybe he goes on and he becomes a follower of Christ later in life. I think that that probably is the case. But it doesn't here. It leaves it open-ended. If you remember when we looked at Nicodemus two weeks ago, same thing. The author leaves it open-ended. And that's for us to have a mirror to say, what choice am I going to make? How am I going to respond to this story? And so I want to leave you with three questions. One about ourselves, one about the woman, and one about Jesus. Here's the first question. Is do you recognize the gravity of your sin? Do you recognize the seriousness of of your own sin, the magnitude of your own sin. Because it can be very easy to do what the self-righteous Simon did and to say, well, I'm not as bad as her. I'm not as bad as him. The truth is that all of us have sin upon us. Every one of us needs a Savior. You compare yourself to other people 
at home, in the community, in the church, and say, well, I'm better than them, that, that doesn't matter. That all of us have a debt which we cannot repay, but Christ died on the cross for our sins to pay that debt, and so we can enter into a right relationship with God through Christ. And I encourage you, if you're here this morning and you haven't made that decision, to make that decision. I'd love to talk to you after the service about how to do that and what that looks like. But the first thing we need to ask ourselves is, do we recognize the gravity of our own sin? Not their sin, but our own sin. Here's the second question. Is, do you risk like the woman? Do you risk like the woman? She took this incredible risk in walking into this party filled with Pharisees, filled with religious people, filled with the up-and-comers of society. She took this incredible risk of walking in to this house, not knowing how the people were going to respond, but having a pretty good idea. Not knowing how Jesus is going to respond, but hoping that he has a positive response. But it was this huge risk that she took. And as the result of the risk, she became a follower of Christ. As a result of the risk, she worshiped at the feet of Jesus and experienced the love and grace and peace of Jesus in huge ways. And so I would challenge each one of you, each one of us, to say, what risks are you taking? And I'd like to say, well, here's the risk that everybody needs to take. But the fact is that every one of us here are in a different place. That what's a risk to somebody is not a risk to somebody else. But I want to challenge you to take a risk. What is God laying on your heart? The risk that God is laying on your heart. You know, for some of you, the risk is to spend 15 minutes a day with God. You know, for some of you, you've been doing that for years and years and years and decades. It's not a risk anymore. But for some of you, to say, I'm going to set my alarm 15 minutes early and get up and be with Jesus. I'm going to turn off Facebook or Netflix or sports or whatever for 15 minutes during the day and spend time with Jesus. That's going to be a risk because you can't get that time back. Is it really going to be worth it for you to know Jesus and to have that intimacy with God, that time with God? That's a risk for you. For some of you, the risk is laying down a sin. There's something that you have been holding on to for a long time. And just like this woman laid her sin at the foot of Jesus, that there's something that you've been holding on to that you don't want to let go of that God is prompting you to let go of. For some of you, the risk may be going to celebrate recovery tomorrow night. For the first time, to step into a group and say, I have a problem that I can't handle on my own, and I need some help. Maybe that's your risk. Maybe the risk for you is sharing the gospel, verbally sharing the gospel with somebody else. That they've seen your life, they know you go to church, but you've never articulated your faith to them. Maybe that's the risk for you. There's all kinds of risks that God might have in front of you. Maybe it's going on a mission trip or beginning to give a percentage of giving to God's work at the beginning opposed to if you have leftovers at the end or apologizing. Or maybe it's volunteering with kids or volunteering with students or doing something on the west side that we're doing at River Ridge. I don't know what it is, but there is a risk for you to take. And I tell you, especially if you've been coming to River Ridge for a while, if you've been following God for a while, don't get stagnant. It can be really easy. I'm just going through the motions. I'm just doing it. And we stop taking risks like this woman took. Keep taking risks. And here's the last question. 
is do you welcome like Jesus? Do you welcome like Jesus? Jesus welcomed this woman fully into his life, fully into worship. And do you do that? And chances are that you know people in your life who are outcasts like this woman, who have public sins like this woman. And do you love them? Who are they in your life? When I um, kind of hear from God and put together messages, I sometimes rewrite things and, and wordsmith things a little bit. And what I had originally for this question was this, is who are the prostitutes in your life? But then I got to think, if you write that down, don't, don't write that, please don't write that down, right? But you write that down and you leave it like on your desk at work and you're like, what kind of church do you go to, right? Don't write that down. But I do want you to think about that. Who are the prostitutes in your life? Who are the people in your life that most people shun, that most people don't love very well, that even you want to keep your distance? How can you welcome them? How can you love them? Do you love like Jesus loves? You know, one of the things that uh, I love about Rivers Church, and I, and I get to see a little bit more than you all, but we get so many comments from people that say, this place was so welcoming. I thought that when I came in, the walls are going to fall down. You know, I had piercings or tattoos or no shoes or, you know, sandals or I was wearing a tie or whatever it is. All kinds of different people come in and people say, I felt welcomed here. You know, we talked about this several months ago in a sermon series. We talked about this phrase that everyone's welcome, but nobody's perfect and change is possible. And that's who we are as a church. And do we welcome people? And the thing, you look at this, and I love the fact that Jesus reached out both to the self-righteous man and the unrighteous woman. It was both. And, and we had that opportunity in our own lives to reach out to both kinds of people. You know, honestly, for me, like I, I'm more comfortable reaching out to people who are far from God and know they're far from God than I am to self-righteous people. But the, the call of this is to love not only the prostitutes, but also to love the Simons, right? And sometimes that's harder to love people who are judgmental or religiously judgmental. And so at River Ridge, we welcome people in. And that is not just the job of the guest services people. That's just not just like, hey, it's the parking people's job. It's the greeter's job to welcome people. It's the coffee people's job. Everybody loves coffee. No, it's all of our jobs. That I want us to all feel that weight of responsibility of being welcoming like Jesus was when people walk in the doors of Riverage Church. That after the service is over, before it starts, to look around and to say, who around me don't I know their name? Who are these people? Is this person new? And just get to know them, ask questions, find out who they are. Because here's the thing. Is the person that you're sitting next to or that sat behind you or in front of you today, they may be just like this woman, coming in here with a whole lot of baggage, not sure that she's going to be accepted, not sure that he's going to be accepted. And you have the opportunity to be the love of Christ, the grace of Christ, the welcoming hand of Christ extended to that person. But you might also come in here and you're sitting next to Simon. And the person is just judgmental and critical and you have the opportunity to be welcoming to that person as well. That's the privilege that we have of being part of the body of Christ. Let's pray together. 
Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time together. Thank you for what you've taught me from this story, and I pray that each one of us would take the nugget of truth, of risk, of being with you, of whatever it is, and apply it to our lives. God, thank you that Jesus accepted me, sinner that I am, and that he accepts all of us if we just come to him in repentance. Thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.